Welcome to the Scott Shepherd Podcast. I am a man on a mission to create an army of independent writers, creators, and thinkers who make a hell of a living doing what they love. And it all starts with one thing, and that is doing things the old way, the hard way, the deliberate way, the anti-net way. Listen in as I share thoughts and rants of what goes on behind the scenes as I create an independent knowledge empire where I get to spend my days doing what I love, reading, writing, and thinking while making a hell of a living and helping my people do the same. All right. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, today we have Dr. Hans Georg Muller, and I uh, had to uh, work on the pronunciation as I uh, told <laughs> you did very Georg. well. As I told Georg, I'm a I'm a typical American that just butchers accents. So uh so hopefully we we got this. Um yeah, thanks for coming on the show, uh Georg. And um Georg is uh my opinion, at least, one of the most intriguing emerging uh intellectuals out there. Call him public intellectuals since he's on uh YouTube now and has over fifty-eight thousand subscribers and uh georg is a currently he's a professor of philosophy at the university of macau and according to amazon he has uh, 14 book titles i'm not sure what the actual number is but at least according to amazon he's the the author or co-author of 14 books and uh his most recent book which i just finished is called you and your profile and i will uh gladly shill that right now for everyone that wants to check it out um it is a really fascinating book about uh, the concept of pro-felicity opposed to authenticity. And since we operate in a, a world where largely our, our profiles kind of lead for us, where people mostly meet our profiles in the online world versus our actual selves in the, the real, quote-unquote, real world. Um, and it's a really fascinating book. And uh, he co-authored it with uh, Paul D'Ambrosio. And... Um, also, he wrote a fantastic book called The Radical Lumen, which I also have, and I will also gladly shill. And this this book is, in my opinion, you know, it's finally a book, and I've picked up several of Nicholas Lumen's books, and I've tried to read them. And I actually find them to be intriguing because they're so challenging. And uh, thankfully, I uh, came across the radical lumen, and I I feel like it is the best introduction uh, for the social scientist Nicholas Lumen's work, and um, I refer to his book extensively in my own book, where I went deep into uh, Lumen's Zettelkasten notebox and how it actually worked, and you know how it really works in analog form, which I contend is the purest form. And there's all these people trying to create digital versions of it and linked notes. And, you know, I go deep into it. And I found this book very, very, very helpful. Um, and uh, uh, Georg also runs a popular YouTube channel, which we'll, we'll also get into, uh, called Carefree Wandering. And he has several videos that have generated hundreds of thousands of views. And uh, one of which is which I've been listening to, I've listened to it a few times, it's really interesting, is The Mirror of Wokeism, which uh, was about Jordan Peterson's uh, uh, philosophy and some of the uh, paradoxical uh, implications with some of his views. And, uh, you know, it's it's uh, generated some attention. And 
I would say you could say created some uh, wrinkles in Jordan Peterson's uh, perfectly made bed. And uh, it's a fascinating video to watch. So anyway, uh, Georg, thank you so much for joining and uh, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me and the very kind and generous introduction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, instead of just going off the top of my head, I figured, you know, it'd be good to nail all of those points from the very beginning. So the uh, the viewers would uh, kind of get a, a, a good background of you. Um, so, you know, what, what I want to jump into first is more of like the mundane stuff that uh, people don't really talk about, that academics don't necessarily talk about, intellectuals don't talk about. And that is your your actual process for um, reading, writing, and thinking, aka, I guess you can call that research. And what does your process look like? Like, do you read physical books at home? You know, most of the time, do you have to go to the uh, university and do you read from your office? What is your what is your process look like? Well, I mean, I still have physical books here on my desk, as mm -hmm. you can see, maybe. Mm -hmm. And I actually, they're not just uh, decoration. I actually also look at the books. Yeah. So I, I do still, uh, I do still uh, use books, but of course the reading, especially like if you progress, uh, well, I don't know if you, uh, I don't know if progress is the right word. If you develop uh, as an academic, you have to read a lot and mm -hmm. you and so that's difficult so you have to develop the capacity to read very selectively and um so that's why you know in the academic industry as i like to call it now you have abstracts right mm -hmm. so uh, often you just read basically an abstract and mm -hmm. um uh, so you have to have develop this capacity just simply given the the multitude of materials um, to find out what is relevant for you. And then depending on the degree of relevance, uh, I'll just read um, maybe just an abstract, look, browse through the book and find out what is relevant. Uh, or I read the whole book uh, or parts of the book, uh, or I just read even more books by the same author or on the author. So it's really a very um, a kind of a highly selective process. And you have to develop the skill, which I think is very difficult mm -hmm. uh, to to be to to be able to make good selections. I sometimes think back to when I was a student or so, and I didn't have this skill. So I was mm -hmm. reading a lot, reading lots of books, including Luhmann's books at the beginning. And I spent hours and hours reading these books without understanding anything. <laughs> right? So you read these books and uh, it's very arduous and the, the kind of result is very minimal, right? So it's not mm -hmm. really the case that someone who reads a whole book necessarily, you know, gets more of the book than someone who reads maybe just a, a few pages of that same book. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a high, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 the really depends on the reading skill of the, of, of the reader. So that's, does that, uh, that was part of the question at least. Right? Yeah. And, and do you think that, you know, early on in your maybe career, maybe I sorry for interrupting. I wanted to add so mm -hmm. an, an aspect of this, and that goes also to the Zettelkasten. 
um, is that, of course, you have to, before you read a book, you have to know basically why you read the book, exactly. what you want again, what you're looking for. And, you know, when I was a student, I just read the book because it was somehow, you know, recommended by the professor or something like this, mm -hmm. but I didn't really know what to look for. Mm -hmm. And so you already have to basically, you know, have a certain interest why you're reading that book or why you're reading that text and already know kind of what is it that you want to, and you have, of course, in addition to that, also to be able to let the book inspire you or let the text inspire mm -hmm. you and find something that, uh, you didn't really, you, you, it sparks an idea, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, I think, what the Zettelkasten in part did. You know, probably much more about the Zettelkasten than I. Uh, but uh, I mean, a lot, uh, as far as I understand, the big part of the Zettelkasten is just basically notes that Luhmann made when reading stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. So he would just make notes on, 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 on texts he was reading. And, and that shows that he was like a very advanced, a very good reader. Right. So he would basically read certain materials in order to somehow integrate these materials into his own theoretical architecture. Yeah. His 30 year theory of everything, essentially. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. So he was always, when he was reading something, he was seeing, Oh, I can use this and I can put it at this point in my Zettelkasten, which means at a certain kind of not in within my theoretical architecture. And there mm -hmm. it makes sense. And then, then I draw lines to other, uh, to other stuff that I read elsewhere. And that's a very, very kind of advanced and very kind of, um, uh, professional form of reading skill that I guess the Zettelkasten documents. Yeah. And yeah. 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 You know, in, it's it's interesting. We'll we'll jump into. There's a lot of very interesting things that you've said that that we'll we'll, uh, we'll come back to. Um, the with uh, with Lumen's Zettelkasten, it was you know how his worked essentially. It was one big, almost like a one big Microsoft Word document for his 30 year you know theory of everything as it applies for applies to society. You know the social systems essentially applied to society. So it was. You know, there wasn't a mic. There wasn't Microsoft Word back then. If you're going to build this theory of everything, maybe today you would just start, you know, taking all of your readings, all of the notes from the books you've read, and then figure out and know, hey, I'm going to plug this into this part of the chapter, or this part, or this part. So he didn't really have that luxury. So he, you know, created this whole system that easily allowed him to access almost every single paragraph in his, you know, 30 year theory of everything. Um, right. Yeah. The yeah, the you know it's interesting is is you said um early on in your your career you would you would kind of do the the reading that would you know there's the readings and books would come to you that were just intriguing or were new new and had the novelty effect and were maybe maybe uh recommended by a professor or something and you didn't maybe didn't necessarily have a goal for reading the book or an actual project um is that kind of uh, maybe your your or one of your advancements? Is it that such that when you're reading today, like let's say you have you and your profile, and that is your active project that you're working on for you know six months or a year? Do you approach your reading now such that you know you said you have to be very selective and selectivity? There's almost two layers to that. There's selecting the book or selecting materials, and then selecting the material within the material 
you know, selecting the material right. within the book, right? Because you right. don't want to get you you know the first part is important because you don't want to select and read a book that is irrelevant and the second part is important that you want to actually not get bogged down and spend 3 months on a book reading a book that you know ends up being very not very applicable to uh, what exactly. you're currently working on yes yeah. so i guess luman would agree i mean most part of the selection is deciding what not to read rather than deciding <laughs> what to read yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, has your like when, when you were writing? Um, let's let's talk about you know, you know writing you and your profile was probably a bit u- unique or different than writing a book on your own because you collaborated. Well, with... I mean, I wrote this with Paul, who is my former PhD student, and we've been working together on stuff since I guess now more than a decade. Mm-hmm. Um. And this is a second book we wrote together. We wrote another book before that on Chinese philosophy on Taoism together, which actually the first one emerged out of Paul's PhD thesis. Mm. Um, so, um, uh, I enjoy the co-writing because of the kind of the mutual back and forth and the feedback and you're not just stuck in your own thoughts and you have always have some sort of dialogue going on. That's, I think, very useful. Um, the, uh, like, uh, I'm not, not exactly sure if that was your question, but the, uh, the writing of this, well, the, the writing for me, the writing of books is, is somewhat similar. I use this kind of metaphor in my mind. I don't know how appropriate that is, like with a pregnancy. Uh, <laughs> you have to, uh, you have to like kind of let the let the idea somehow grow on its own, mature, mm. uh, before you, so to speak, give birth to the book that is then the child, right? Mm-hmm. And which would be the actual writing process. So uh, for me, like this kind of pregnancy with a book is an actually much longer process than the giving birth process. So I write yes. then very fast. But I notice now that if I haven't thought about something, uh, if the idea hasn't grown on me or in me for, let's say, longer than an actual pregnancy uh, mm-hmm. for years, actually, and then it kind of, you know, uh, it's easy for me to write uh, <clears throat> the book and uh, it doesn't take long. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I know what I'm what I want to do and what I'm doing. And I, I can you cannot really force this. Right. It has to this. It has the ideas have to mature. And while the ideas mature again, it's a dialogical process. I mentioned the dialogues with Paul. And again, then it's not just that the writing, it's just like really the hours and hours of just talking about it that are really mm-hmm. relevant, uh, more, more so than the actual writing process. And then also um, with what we talked about earlier, that you have this idea in your mind and then whatever you encounter, this may be academic books, this may be academic philosophy, because I'm in philosophy, this may be very much importantly, like everyday events in culture and society and politics, right. Uh, But also then on a third level, like again, like with Paul in personal interaction, but also just in personal conversation with, with friends, 
these are kind of three different levels where you elaborate and apply the idea, like let's say the idea of prophylicity, right? So mm-hmm. there are all these three levels. You, you, The prophylicity is our term, Paul's and mine, right? That that's mm-hmm. what you're kind of supposed to do as philosopher, at least in the way we do philosophy in the mm-hmm. European sense. Uh, we kind of Point. invent Exactly. We invent mm-hmm. certain concepts. And then, of course, you have to kind of relate and develop and uh, connect the co- the concept with already existing con- concepts, uh, with basically with the history of philosophy, and you have to somehow insert it there. Uh, that's the academic kind of part. But then secondly, the concept of prophylicity, you know, we relate it to things that are actually going on again, like in politics mm-hmm. and pop culture and uh, on social media and, and so forth. Uh, but then thirdly, which is equally, I think all the three uh, aspects are equally important. Uh, you talk about it with friends, right? So um, mm-hmm. now I have lots of friends and uh, the notion of prophylicity has become like standard vocabulary in our mm-hmm. uh, in in our conversations right and then um you know but and this is all part basically of the maturation process right mm-hmm. uh, and w- once you did this for a while um then basically as i said earlier the the idea is kind of uh, shaped has has taken on a really kind of has the 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 fetus has grown into yep. a, a kind of a being that can walk on its own legs eventually mm-hmm. yeah the development it's essentially a right. uh yeah the development of the idea the incubation of it i like the preg the pregnancy example of this idea little baby growing from absolutely nothing to right you know and and so yeah there's that's interesting it's like in the, the birthing process you know like the pregnancy process isn't just nine months, let's say it's like two years, you know, 24 right, months. Right, right. Right. And how does that like where, so it, that takes place in terms of communication and sharing it with others. It takes place, which is, you know, what Lumen, you know, was his, his big contribution communication and, uh, you know, such a huge, huge, I think overlooked, uh, or, you know, uh, concept out there, the, well, how communication is the link between, you know, the mind body problem, right. <laughs> the Gordian knot way that Lumen solved the age old mind body problem, right. Communication, but communication with, um, you know, with others also, I think I liked what I enjoyed from the book is how you, I guess, filtered the idea of prophylicity through your own personal experience and your own personal observation of seeing it take place in the world, like that Airbnb example and that that tourist example, where all those the, the you know where essentially travel has become that profile building exercise, you know, right? And, and right. since you've had that that concept of prophylicity, you know, you were essentially pregnant with that idea you were able to kind of view the world through personal experience through that and attach more and more uh instances and examples supporting it um exactly yeah does it take place does this take place not just um you know in your head and talking to others and personal experience but do you also during this you know development pregnancy phase of the idea where where else do you keep the development of the idea? Do you write down on notes or note cards? Do you keep a file on your computer? Like where where else does it live? Hey, Scott Shepard here. Real quick. 
This podcast is sponsored by me. Yes, me, Sir Scott of Shepherd. I am committed to never shilling some dildo hipster crappy freaking product like all the other podcasters do. All right? My only ask, however, is that you spend 10 seconds right now. Literally pull to the side of the freaking road, the freeway. Stop. (laughs) Rate and review this podcast. Share it with a friend. This will help me spread my movement. You see, I want to create an army of 1,000 independent writers, creators, and thinkers who get to spend their days writing and creating using analog tools while making multiple six figures if they even need to, and more importantly, building a tribe of people that they were called to build, okay? And I want you to rate and review this podcast because it will directly help me in this mission. That's all I ask. All right, now back to the regularly scheduled program. Peace. Well, uh, what Paul and I did, uh, especially with the You and Your Profile uh, book, when as part of this process, we uh, we wrote papers, uh, kind of mm. uh, we call them kind of pilot papers, mm. uh, and that's useful, especially here in the Asian academic context. Paul works in Shanghai at a university, and the basic salary is not so high there. Mm-hmm. And he gets uh, a significant part of his salary comes from journal publications, academic ah. journal publications. So he has a lot of pressure to uh, publish journal uh, articles. And so we kind of combined this pressure and tried to use it for some for something useful. Mm-hmm. So uh, as even though the ideas were maybe not that mature yet, not that much developed, we we wrote a number of papers together, academic papers, just trying out the idea, right? And um, forcing ourselves to kind of work on it in the in the context of an academic paper, papers that we maybe didn't really like that much <laughs> after <Yeah. laughs> a while because we thought they were immature, right? But they mm-hmm. but they nevertheless um, uh, forced us to uh, you know to push the concept to its limits and to see what works and what doesn't work. And so, so for just, even though the papers aren't really that great, I think they still are very valuable for us as, uh, as this kind of intermediate stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That's where the, the, essentially the knowledge development took place is through, through the, you're developing the ideas through the papers and such that, you know, they can kind of mature, you know, after you look right. back and then take the best material um, and, you know, kind of create a more cohesive, linear narrative uh, in the form of a book, uh, right. at least much more linear and your books read much more linearly and cohesively than, you know, Lumens, right? Lumens of probably course, just yeah. compiled the papers. <laughs> in yeah. and, and I mean, said, that's a... That's uh, I thought a lot about this, um, and um, uh, so on the one hand, the settled custom was, of course, exactly as you describe it, like a, a kind of a, a pre-computerized uh, production machine of text, and clearly mm-hmm. this is how he was able to produce this insane amount of mm-hmm. uh, publications that he has. Right, these hundreds and hundreds of articles and. Uh, dozens and dozens of these books which are all like several hundred pages long right Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes even more than a thousand 
it's kind of how he did this is uh yeah it, 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 he could only do it through really uh this uh, zettelkasten technology so it it proved to be like an immense immensely productive way uh, of writing uh, on the other hand, and you know, I have this one chapter in my book, The Radical oh, yeah. Human, on why, why I wrote, why he wrote so, such so, bad books. Soporific, soporific writing style. And, <laughs> right, and, uh, right, yeah. right. Yeah. But uh, I mean, the, the thing is, um, as you said, one of the things is that the books are not linear. Uh, and they're intentionally not, not linear, which also kind of fits the theory because it's systemic, right? And systems are not somehow operating in a linear fashion. So, mm -hmm. uh, but anyways, uh, it kind of disappoints the expectations of, of the reader. And it's kind of weird for the reader to kind of see, see where he's going because he's always going in spirals or circles Self, or self-referential. Yeah, the yeah. self-referential kind of loop. Crisscrossing. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then the the writing is unfortunately this kind of this it's almost impenetrable German academic writing mm -hmm. style, which is transmitted from whatever the 18th century, where you know you have to have these very long sentences and you have to use um you know, very kind of um, specific terminology that you never really define, but only, right? You hardly find any definitions in Luhmann of his terminology. Mm -hmm. You all have yeah, to figure, that to figure, figure, figure mm -hmm. that out on yourself uh, or with the help of, um, of your whatever, Luhmann dictionaries. There are several mm -hmm. Luhmann dictionaries in German, and uh, ah. one is also now available. The, the glossary by, uh, is now available in English. Um, but even the glossary made by uh, Elena Esposito, she was a student, and mm -hmm. two other students, um, former students, they they wrote this glossary of Luhmann. But even that is difficult to read. It's almost mm -hmm. as difficult to read as Luhmann's own uh, yeah. writing. So the, the, for for a beginner, even that isn't that helpful. So there is no linearity. There is there are not really any kind of clear definitions. And what is maybe worse, worst is that and that is clearly i think because of the settle custom that he jumps from one idea to the next to the next to the yep. next so uh, basically you never have like a continuous exposition of an idea where mm -hmm. like he would stay with the same idea for like five pages and really lay it out so it's yeah. didactically horrible right mm -hmm. and of course again this has a lot of reasons because in germany um, university teachers were not supposed to be teachers. The idea that the, mm -hmm. this idea of didactics and that you have to, you know, uh, that it was completely the opposite idea in, in German ac academia, right? This is very different from the Anglo-American system where the, where, you know, where the, um, uh, students are seen like college students and you have to, you're basically an educator right but mm. the german uh, f university professors were, were not educators they didn't see themselves as educators that was been be beneath them below mm -hmm. them yeah uh, right uh, yeah i think that, he was yeah. disappointed that the university of bielefeld never became the uh you know a, a completely research-based lab institution like he foresaw or wanted it to be because i think he was one of the first if not the first tenured professors and he was there from the very beginning Right, and, right. Uh, he, you know, yes. he was very, he yeah. was very clear and transparent about that. He's like, no, it just turned into a regular university. Exactly. <laughs> so he's yes. disappointed yeah. in that. Um, right. But yeah, and you also pointed out, and I, I agree with you as well, is that 
you know, he also was kind of incentivized to lace his theory and his theoretical work uh, into kind of hard to penetrate, hard to understand language um, for the sake of he didn't want, you know, what he called the stupid critics, his stupid critics and the, you know, the general public critics to come in and try to understand him and misunderstand him and, you know, create a ton of, you know, uh, you know, social justice, get get canceled exactly. back in the day. Yes. Um, yeah. So, you know, he, I mean, that that wasn't incomparably less than it is nowadays. But yeah. still, uh, I mean, there was already the 68 movement and he was part of like the Habermas and the political right. That was mm-hmm. the main debate. So I'm I'm sure exactly as you say that was absolutely intentional. This kind of esoteric writing style, right? Yeah. Which is only basically for a very small group of of the initiated who can really penetrate it, and yeah. who have to study with him for years in order to be able to do so, right? Yeah, yeah. His, his Zettelkasten it made it easier to be more impenetrable for sure. Right. You know, it it didn't yes. make it less. It didn't make it more linear and more clear. <laughs> Exactly. You know. Yes. Um. And you know, it's interesting. What you, I'm just fascinated that you've been you've been able to develop these ideas and incubate them through the through the research paper process. Um. I like. I looked at the total. It was. You know. I think there's like 550 like peer reviewed Lumen papers, and I think in the uh, the well, they were not really peer reviewed at the time. Yeah, yeah, okay. That's also yeah. a difference. You have to take this into account. I mean, I'm I'm old, Scott. I know this from my kind of early <laughs> student days, right? The journals, the whole academic industry, especially like in Germany, was entirely different. There mm. were basically no peer-reviewed journals in the way they are now peer-reviewed. Oh, okay. Uh, it was just a small group, often just one person, the editor, who would ah. uh, you would send the paper and the editor editor would uh, would make the decision if to to publish it or not interesting so there there was no formal peer review process as it is today and certainly not blind mm-hmm. so it, it's almost as if his his uh you know verbose very uh i would say you know, mentally because, taxing. Sorry, sorry, Scott. Because most of the papers that Luhmann wrote, they would not go through the contemporary peer review process. They would have yes. been, he would yeah. have been, you know, he would not have been re- wanted to revise the paper in uh, yeah. response to some, st- <laughs> to as you 20 said, different like comments. stupid, yeah. <laughs> stupid reviewers uh, who were not anywhere near his on his level, right? Yeah, that would have yeah. he could have never published these papers in the in the con- and would it would not have in the contemporary yeah. peer review system yeah Sorry for fascinating no that's fascinating i so i've you know no way of knowing that didn't know that um he he essentially it, it went to one editor essentially who probably looked at it and said well this is uh above my pay grade to try to even understand <laughs> almost well i mean uh, often it would be, be whatever he had a, like a manuscript and uh, he would whatever go to a conference and then someone would say hey i want to publish this in my journal yeah or, he would respond uh, respond to the request essentially right right mm-hmm. yes. yeah and like I was looking at it, like the the sheer number, and I, you know, he even said he's in one of the interviews. I believe it's called Shortcuts, Nicholas Lumen Shortcuts. Mm. That that interview, that collection of interviews. Um, he he was he did very very little ed- editing after he you know right. submitted or finished it, and exactly. um, but the 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 point is is like that if you look at it and extrapolate back like the six hundred, you know, let's say, um. 
uh, articles that he published uh, that comes out to over, I, 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 can't, I think it was like a 34 year period that he published it or something like that. It was almost like it was like one and a half to two articles that he published and wrote per month, you know, so yeah. a lot of his yeah. thinking really came through not necessarily even in the Zettelkost and it came through the exact same way that you know you've been able to kind of incubate and develop the ideas as well through those like mini mini uh article projects sure. yeah yes um what are you working on any currently right now like any current articles are they in the works uh there are a number of articles um this i have another book project basically now in uh, in the pregnancy stage <laughs> and that's on and that's on gender identity okay right i mean the the you and your profile book is on identity mm-hmm. and uh, the switch from authenticity to profilicity and um so the next project is basically on gender identity as profile identity and with an emphasis on with an emphasis on transgender mm. and um i'm working with a with a psych psych psychologist who works or, or with transgender people mm-hmm. and oh, that's so it's also collaborative also a collaborative project you were going into a, a hot market there with that with that book <laughs> i hope so of course i mean you always have to think of your own profile at the same time which is always a challenge right because um, whenever you uh, uh, if you pick such a topic on the one hand it's it it the topic has is a high profile topic but then of course it's a very dangerous terrain to uh step on so it can also destroy one's profile yeah i think the the inner exactly the the uh the intersection there is you know what what is what and what you mentioned what is intriguing and what fascinates you right now and then the venn diagram and if that's if that can overlap with a uh currently in modern times be a very popular you know subject or topic then Hey, link up the Venn diagram, and that's a great, great uh, topic to go after and explore. Right. Yeah. I think also, I, I I just glanced at it, but with Carefree Wandering, I think that's that might be one of your more popular, if not the most popular um, YouTube videos. There was one uh, that had almost 500,000 views. And, right. Uh, yeah. So that's almost that's that's interesting i guess you can use your youtube channel now as almost a a testing ground for what ideas resonate absolutely i mean this is all um, this is all this that this video was so popular was because it was about a, another uh, youtuber who came out as trans mm-hmm. and then uh, the algorithm pushed our video and so a lot of people clicked on it uh because it yeah it it kind of uh, was uh, it rode the algorithm wave so that's mm-hmm. always a thing but of course nevertheless you're com- completely right i mean the 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 transgender topic is of and the is of course something that causes still you know uh, creates a lot of attention on on youtube for sure yeah and um with uh let's let's we can jump into carefree wandering a little bit right now, since we're we just transitioned in, into that that arena. Um, I'm curious of uh, you know why did you choose the uh, you know the pro uh, 
profil- the prophilic. It's it's difficult sometimes to say uh, get prolific and prophilic confused. Right, right, by the way, right. <laughs> so I'm trying to yeah, sure. catch myself. But uh, why yeah. did you choose the prophilic identity or the prophilic brand of carefree wandering versus you know more of the uh, uh, the popular public intellectual strategy, you know, of like jo- Jordan B. Peterson, right. And branding it after your own name. And, uh, what, what, what went into the carefree wandering <laughs> brand? I give, uh, it's true. I didn't come up with a name myself. My PhD student kind of a local student here from Macau. He basically was the initiator of this channel. And he made made all of that. He made the name. He made the logo without even asking. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, okay. Okay. and uh, the the name Carefree Wondering is. I mean, uh, it's Carefree Wondering is one of the translations of a core Taoist philosophical notion, mm-hmm. Yo in mm-hmm. Chinese, that is very central to my understanding of Taoism. And uh, I'm a kind of Taoist myself, not in the, mm-hmm. uh, I don't meditate or anything like that, but intellectually, I'm strongly influenced by this philosophy, which I've been studying forever. And um, so this notion of, of yo or xiao yao yo is very central to the philosophy I've been studying. And it's something mm-hmm. that I also kind of philosophically embraced. So when my student came up with this title for the channel, um, on the one end, he was definitely, you know, um, picking something that is very important to me philosophically. So he had good, very good reason to pick that term, but he didn't consult me. He just yeah. made it up. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. So and that's the brand. And, uh, yeah. Now that's the brand. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I am out of this kind of Taoist element in my uh background uh i also kind of you know went with the flow and uh see what happens and and um that's also like i was carefree trying to be carefree wondering about the carefree wondering title itself right yeah yeah i love it yeah i think i think people like that and get that sense you know i think the um the kind of the prescriptive formula is is uh kind of based around like what gets any movement going, you know, is like people want that charismatic leader, you know, the attractive character. And so you get that and you brand it after that's kind of like the Jordan Peterson formula branded exactly. after that. Yes. Um, yes. you know, wh- whereas yours is, is really fascinating because it's branded around the idea of the pursuing that intellectual fascination, the carefree wandering, and just continuing to explore the ideas, put it out there, and I think the the carefree is an important part because a lot of people don't hit the publish button or go wherever their intellectual fascination guides them or takes them because of that, you know, they don't have that carefree nature. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I, I like I like the brand. I was that's kind of the feeling it gave me. I was like, oh, this is and people know they'll, they'll look up Han, Hans Georg Muller and uh, they can find you through that anyway. You know, so it's uh, yeah. Cool. Thank you. I'm I'm glad it resonated with you in that way because that's that that is what it is intended to be. Uh, yeah, as a channel, and again, that that is kind of inspired by my background in Taoist philosophy, which is basically the only philosophy where I'm 
somewhat of a specialist <laughs> really yeah. right because yeah uh because that's the, that's that's a tradition that i really did decades of work with a primary text in an academic context right yeah so that's my main my main academic specialization is that the Taoist philosophy and chinese uh uh culture and and you know especially i mean chinese culture is so broad i wouldn't really call myself <laughs> yeah, a, a, yeah. A, a specialist on that but uh yeah the Taoist da philosophy that's really my my academic kind of feel, field of or how do they say area of specialization that's the technical mm -hmm. term mm. yeah yeah and do you think that the you know and i've heard you say that um you know uh lumens lumens uh you know lens through which he sees the world and the taoist philosophy they both exist separate but they both have informed and helped shape your your unique ways that you have been able to like model and view the world um, absolutely yeah yes and um yeah you go ahead sorry yeah i was gonna say like how do you, so what i've kind of realized and developed or developed and i think you have you have as well is you know with um let's take the jordan peterson's the mirror of wokeism kind of uh video where you know there's two poles he kind of operates in the dualistic land nature where on the one pole you know on one of the poles you have wokeism and then you know the social justice warriors wokeism that type of you know that on that pole and then on the other pole that and that's kind of what Peterson would maybe represent as chaos and then on the other pole you have <laughs> you know you have uh order complete order sure. which is the Jordan Peterson philosophy <laughs> and making your own bed taking radical sure. insane responsibility right right and so through those two poles they've kind of like mirrored each other because like one's right. over here one's over here and they've mirrored each other whereas lumen you know but the way he looked at it was this ironical paradoxical view where it's like both are necessary but like kind of like the mind body paradigm but the interlinking factor is that there's communication that sits above it and you know where kind of both both poles are necessary and both poles are kind of valid and invalid they're both serious and non-serious right right and so i i think that is that's what i've kind of discovered and, and learned in kind of reading lumen is is the the paradoxical nature of of re when when you find a paradox in whatever field you're studying that's a sign that you're truly on to probably closest to the truth and it's the most accurate you know depiction of the truth right like right. is and the only problem with that at least in um in at least in you know the cap if if you're an actor or an agent in the capitalistic world and, and system is it's more complex than the whole jordan peterson notion of like good versus evil good versus good versus bad and lumen was a very anti good versus bad anti ideological you know um so on the one hand the paradoxical view, the Lumanian view and ironical view of reality is more accurate, but it is essentially less effective in kind of conjuring up a massive following and getting people to understand it because it's so complex, right? Exactly. So it's yes. it's more complex, it's more accurate, but it's less effective. And then you have, on the other hand, the Jordan Peterson 
polarizing view or the wokeism social justice warrior polarizing view in one direction or the other it's uh less accurate but it is way more effective because it is simple so yes how do we what 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 do we what do we make of this like how does one you know if one is going to choose like for me i'm in marketing and i'm also in you know uh, I'm an I'm a independent, so I'm a, I'm in the capitalistic, you know, uh, system, and I operate as that. So I'm looking, I'm incentivized to do what is effective, right? The problem is that the effective route is the simple route, and it's also not, you know, accurate necessarily compared to what is true. <laughs> so how do you make sense of uh, this this dichotomy? Uh, that's a very good description that you gave, Scott, and uh, very itself quite kind of complex let me let me um give a f- give a few comments first of all i fully agree with you said and uh, with what you said and uh, so um you're right i mean um wokeism and uh peterson is they're both operating they communicate in a very polarizing way and mm-hmm. they feed off one another, right? Uh, uh, and so their 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 mutual their polarization is a mutual polarization, mm-hmm. uh, and that's why the simple kind of mirror meta- metaphor. That I mean, we have that uh, culture war uh, um, term, right? And so they are the two opposing sides of the of the ongoing uh, culture wars. And then, of course, if you step back a little bit uh, and look at it from the outside. Uh, then you can see how both sides are basically feeding off each other and basically doing the same thing in a in a kind of strange uh, interrelated and and paradoxical way that basically by opposing one another they sustain one another mm-hmm. right their opposition is at the same time a, a kind of mutual uh, sustaining mm-hmm. and that's in itself paradoxical now luman has this basic insight which in one way or another corresponds for instance with Taoism, but with also the whole dialectical tradition is going back through hegel which was very influential for luman all the way to plato uh the uh and heraclitus if you want uh this idea of kind of um that you know the unity of a distinction uh that uh the two sides of a distinction are kind of you know mutually um contradicting one another but at the same time that this contradiction is something that is very productive and that is at the Mm. center of the dynamics that is going on and uh, he uses german term paradoxie entfaltung which unfolding of the paradox right and uh, so that the paradox becomes something that is very productive very creative uh, and the point is not like you would have like in an Anglo-American uh, uh, analytic way, you always want to whatever to solve the paradox or the paradox is somehow seen as an obstacle and have something that that ob- obstructs productivity. But for Luhmann, it's the opposite, right? The paradox is in itself very, uh, is, is um, you know, is basically at the heart of whatever unfolds in communication. So that's a, that's a basic insight. Again, you can connect it with all kinds of, if you want, dialectical thinking, and uh, so and then you basically have two modes, right? Either you're 
uh, you identify with one of the two sides of the contradiction, mm -hmm. as whatever Peterson strongly does, uh, or you look at it from the outside, uh, and uh, then you don't really take sides. Um, uh, and uh, the second option is, of course, what, what Luhmann did. And that option, uh, and that again is very similar to Taoism. Uh, mm. Luhmann knew very little about Asian philosophy. He writes, he writes about everything also about Asia and China and Chinese philosophy, but it's obvious that he knows very little. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. That, uh, that's, um, right. Um, anyways, uh, the, the common, I think the link, uh, is stoicism. Luhmann mm. kind of uh, rarely but decisively at, at decisive junctures embraces stoicism and kind of sees himself as a stoic. And Taoism has often been compared with uh, the stoic tradition and it's kind of a Chinese uh, form of stoicism. Mm. Uh, and of course, what stoicism, again, that, that relates, stoicism also doesn't really take sides, right? Stoicism tries precisely to uh through contemplation on uh, reflection uh to achieve something like a uh theoretical insight of what's going on and at this at the same uh, and through this achieve some form of equanimity or calmness mm -hmm. right uh, uh and um, that's very similar to the Taoist uh, strategy and um that's of course very different from what happens if you're identifying with one of the poles of the mm -hmm. culture wars where it's not making you calm but it's making you very and it is very much praised in in specifically in the american culture and in the american and the american corporate culture is of course also strongly influenced by this kind of activism and the emphasis mm -hmm. on agency and the emphasis of you know uh, ma making improvement is always very important mm -hmm. right and uh, so um it's it's about uh, really uh, this 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 um this emphasis on on agency on activism on uh, uh and then in in modernity very much strongly uh, connected with individualism affirming your specific identity and so forth right mm -hmm. and um uh individualism and so forth so that this is like this and and kind of an a strong emphasis on on um on assuming a specific identity and affirming it and 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 through it kind of developing uh, agency uh right by by taking on a standpoint mm -hmm. uh and uh, making a difference <laughs> uh and um uh, uh so uh and of course luman uh that's one an, an important reason why luman doesn't really resonate very well with uh, uh in america uh, because again, he is a stoic. Uh, mm -hmm. He um, he doesn't aim at uh, this kind of uh, intense activism, uh, but he aims at a theoretical reflection and ultimately uh, some form of um, um, a stoic um, equanimity. Yeah. And uh, in, in a completely non-mystical, non-religious way, mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, so he's not even fulfilling that kind of new age uh, thing yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. that Taoism <laughs> is sometimes used or abused yeah. for. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so in the end of the book, you know, um, uh, I use this uh, kind of metaphor that it's a kind of a yoga yoga uh, mat uh, that that Luman offers you, rather than you know a a um, kind of a spiritual evaluation uh, mm-hmm. elevation or something. So um, it's a it's a very kind of um, almost spartanic uh, mm-hmm. form of um, intellectual um um how to say theoretical uh rigor but that at the same time and that's really the important thing uh allows you this kind of um, ironic and ironic in a mm-hmm. positive sense yes uh, uh, an ironic in the positive sense that you because luman also has this kind of sense of humor which is mm-hmm. very important mm-hmm. uh, very the, dry uh, ironic yes very dry extremely dry humor so it's a kind of very uh, interesting mixture of complete dryness with a very mm-hmm. subtle humor and again the the point of irony is not to you know to uh, make fun of others but to uh basically and to you know take them down but to 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 see the to see the contradictions to 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 see the the, the humor in everything mm-hmm. and that again creates a sort of ease that allows you not to over identify with a specific position Mm-hmm, right exactly uh, so you, you need to be able to see whatever the culture wars and uh, peterson and uh, the social justice warriors with a sense of irony mm-hmm. just for the sake of maintaining your own sanity in order not to uh, not to get carried away by some sort of fundamentalism exactly that's the point yeah, yeah. i think you know you, you kind of answered a question i was going to ask is kind of like the practical implications of understanding Lumen's theories. And it's almost as if, if you go deep into Lumen's uh, theoretical work and you adopt and understand his views and the way the the ironical paradoxical uh, views of the two poles, it's almost like the practical implications is it's like the best anti-cult mind control mechanism out there. You won't get carried away in the you know wokeism or the the peterson and you won't get carried away and you know go to war or or, you know enact and illicit violence because you've kind of understood taken it apart adopted almost that stoic the ironical stoic type of feel towards it where you're not going in it and also you know is you know, let's say, let's say it, it doesn't mean inaction necessarily. It just means that maybe if you take action, you know, towards one of the poles, right. And say, Hey, this is my stance. This is what I believe. You're at least conscious of it and of the paradoxes of it. And you're not uh, too dogmatic essentially. Right. <laughs> of right. Uh, Exactly. That's, yeah. that's the point. I mean, I use these kind of um, uh, at the end of the you and your profile books, I use these kind of mottos, and uh, two of the mottos are one is critical but not judgmental. Mm, yeah, that's right? right. So I mm-hmm. think, and that's the and the and the second one is therapeutic but not normative. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and again, that's kind of this activism is often tends to be normative and then create fundamentalism. And the more the Tao is stoic Lumanian way is ultimately a therapeutic way, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's also, it's not just about being merely passive, but, uh, um, uh, the, the the function of theory is ultimately then also the, both the psychological and the sociological function, or even in, in a wider sense, the political function, is a therapeutic and all a healing way, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, rather than uh, um, and a de-escalation. And um, that's 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 what it aims at. Because I mean we're always on the, you know, the uh it is the the um, the paradox and the contradictions and and they are very productive but at the mm-hmm. same time they're also very dangerous and they can mm-hmm. easily lead to uh all kinds of destructive uh antagonisms mm-hmm. and so i think uh luman and the lumanian approach in theory the non-normative the non-activist approach is immensely useful Mm-hmm. and immensely important mm-hmm. because if we wouldn't have that element uh, we would uh, basically be in complete self-destruction mm-hmm. and that's yeah, why I... I think it's 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 also politically extremely important yeah i i think your your uh, uh the mirror of wokeism video on jordan peterson was one of the best i think instantiations of this whole principle of critical but not judgmental you know you you went deep into you know his his uh his i guess views and um you know and 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 you're critical you know uh, uh you could say or critiquing you know some of his views with the you know the 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 four kind of points right the four falsehoods uh or i i don't know if it's the four falsehoods but the four kind of lies you know of of uh that we've kind of believed uh at one point um and and uh you you went in you went through it in such a way that it wasn't you know judging peterson it was almost it was observing an I- irony in the mirror of wokeism and i think it was very effective it was it, it helped the listener to like really go deeper and understand uh some interesting uh patterns or ideas uh you know uh with with jordan peterson versus kind of going down uh the ideological dogmatic route as what lumen would definitely not want you know one to travel right. too far down uh so it it definitely was very useful and helpful uh, it also was effective, and I think it, you know, it it elicited a response from Jordan Peterson via the comment, uh, which uh, I watched the follow up video. Did he ever respond back or comment back and watch the the? Uh, you haven't heard anything from him on the response video. Uh, uh, no, unfortunately not. I mean, his initial response was negative. I made a few mistakes, uh, and he was right in at least indirectly pointing them out. But his response was. Uh, like a Trump response, I guess, uh, because it <laughs> was very, uh, uh, very uh, emotional and, and authentic, right? It was uh, yeah. over the top. Uh, yeah. And he was really uh, offended or whatever. And then I responded to his response. And then he kind of reflected a bit and responded to my response, but just to the comment and kind of was a, a, apparently a little bit um, uh, also um 
uh, had ever, however, you know, shocked by his own overreaction in the first place. And he t- mm-hmm. t- good is good. I mean, I credit him for this and try to tone it down. But yeah, unfortunately, then he he didn't react to the second video. But he pointed out a few um, mistakes that I made. I should have instead of speaking, I think, of rationality, but I should have really highlighted the sovereign individuality thing, which is his major thing. And mm-hmm. so um, I didn't express myself very well in, in some important aspects in the first video, but in the mirror of wokeism video. So, uh, but yeah, um, no, uh, I was glad about his response, but unfortunately, there it didn't develop into a further dialogue. Yeah, I think s- some of his critiques uh, some of the response was, um, or one of it was, I think he didn't take it too kindly or, uh, didn't, and I didn't, you know, go too deep into this, but he didn't like how it was implied that self-help was almost, uh, used like derogatively against him, uh, you know, like that he's a self-help author or something. And, you know, when I watched the video and, you know, it's like I don't. You did not do that. You did not. You did not deride self help at all. You made an observation that that's like that's a a genre, a media genre, in which he operates, and that's it. It was it was a critique. It was not judgmental, you know. But I right. think that that the uh, people kind of like read into it and imply that the that that there's uh, you know a implied judgmental um, uh, aspect. I mean, that's of clear, right? I mean. Yeah. But it's not. I, mean, that's like, also I, I think mar- he balanced it nicely. Yeah. I mean, that's clear. I mean, this is like the self-help genre is this is again profiling, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he he profiled himself, but of course he's also been profiled. Uh, good for him. I would like to have like uh, whatever agents like he must have or whatever publishers who promote his stuff that it becomes so uh, successful, right? I mean, as I said, like the reason why I got successful was I the algorithm wave because of this coincidence, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I think his his uh, thing, uh, I'm sure there were also kind of coincidences, but it's unconceivable that there's not also a very kind of um, systematic effort by uh, publishers or uh, uh, agents uh, that promote his profile, and very yeah. clearly, the self-help profile was was very important in propelling him to that fame, because yeah. the self-help genre uh, is uh, is like in the non-fiction market, basically the mm-hmm. only mar- only thing that still thrives uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah. and is market is so greatly marketable. Yeah. So that's simply a fact, and of mm-hmm. course, maybe it, maybe it, uh, it, you know, uh, how to say, eitelkeit. I don't think I can translate this literally in English, but it, it, he sees it as some form of insult if I point this out. Uh, you know, he thinks that I'm taking him not intellectually serious enough, or so. Uh, but yeah, uh, as you yeah. said, I think if, if we want to understand him and the phenomenon that he is, and particularly if we want to understand him as a profile, which mm-hmm. is what I'm trying to do in the context of my work, um, then uh, this is an obvious, simple fact. Fact. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his his uh, first book, I think he was wrote, uh, you know, over the period of 10 years, right? Maps of Meaning. And that remains, you know, kind of a, a niche, you know, not kind of not super popular book, right? right? And and the fact is, is when you move more into, okay, how do we figure out how to 
popularize this more, you know, move into the self-help genre, genre, you know, it is what it is. It's not deriding or saying that, <laughs> you know, that uh, anything negative, it's just the fact, the fact is a fact, like, you, you know, right. you've moved into the self-help genre. Um, but yeah, no, I think you d- you've done a, f- uh, with all your videos, you do a, fa- a fantastic jobs threading that line between the critique and judgmental. You do not you know, you do, you're very good about not, you're just, uh, of you eloquently speak and, um, you know, kind of report on observe and you observe in a Lumanian almost way. Uh, That's you know, the idea, of, yeah. yeah, yeah. You observe in like in, in kind of in doing it such that way, the listener is an active participant that links together and can make their own decision on the judgments. Right. So, um, yeah, it was, I think it's, uh, really really a fascinating and unique perspective and i i've loved seeing your channel uh you know become more you know popular and um and grow so it's uh yeah it's fantastic thank you very much scott very yeah frank. um i want to jump into kind of the early days of you discover first discovering nicholas lumen and nicholas mm. lumen's work like, where were you? What were you doing? Were you, you know, studying philosophy, sociology? And what was your life or your viewpoint, your your mental framework like uh, pre-Lumen and post-Lumen? And how did that journey take place? Well, that was in the 1990s uh, when I was still a student, late 80s, early 90s, that I discovered Lumen, which wasn't this that difficult to discover because he was the number one intellectual in Germany at the time. So, and he was like super influential at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so in an academic intellectual setting, right. He was probably the n- number one theorist Germany at that time. So um, there there was no way not knowing about him like how and, did you uh, how did you hear about him you know like was it your professors that uh that uh he was talked just, about him did you just see like 70 books listed with lumen on the name you know in the library and you're like who is well of course i mean there were all these writing all these books that was still before the internet so you would actually go to bookstores and there were lumen books everywhere so that i see that is the case but then, you know, he was also publishing articles in the major newspapers now and then. But simply, he was just a presence in the academic discourse in all fields, mm. because he wasn't really tied to one field. So it was like a, a fashionable theory that the name pop, popped up all the time somewhere. Really? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, more so even at that time, late, I'm talking about late 80s, early 90s, uh, and he was more fashionable. He was the newest fa- fashion. He was mm-hmm. the, the hot the hot item Okay. Uh, th- uh, in theory. In, so, in, in academic theory land. Yes, in German. Mm. Okay, uh, in Germany. N- not really uh, internationally, only in Germany. Germany is very kind of because of the language things. And look, I mean, that was a time... Uh, I remember this, uh, you know, I mean, philosophy and theory at that that time in Germany was completely Germanocentric. Mm-hmm. I was reading Richard Rorty, who was also like, maybe the most fa- fashionable uh, intern in America at that time. Uh, and I couldn't get the English original book in the library in Bonn, which is huge, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because... 
no English, that was not really philosophy, right? A language that you write philosophy. And then we weren't mm -hmm. even very much interested, whatever, in Locke or Hume, that we're only third rate philosophers. Mm -hmm. uh, you would read uh, <laughs> Kant and Hegel, and okay, Hume yeah. was a little bit important for Kant, but that's basically the only role he has in the philosophy, in the history of philosophy that he influenced Kant. And yeah. You don't really have to read that. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, even like Richard Rorty, right? Yeah, you maybe has translated into German, but you can't even find the original book. So, uh, and so that 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 Ger German theory, German philosophy was completely Germano-centered at that mm -hmm. time. So, um, uh, and so in this kind of provincial setting, if you want, then Luhmann was. Uh, made it to the top at that time and then i never met him i tried to meet him uh i had a chinese professor visiting in the early or mid 90s at the beginning of my academic career and we contacted luma but he was already too ill to receive mm. visitors so this must have been around 95 96 or so mm -hmm. um maybe 94 i don't remember exactly but around mid 90s uh, so because he kind of first agreed to see us and then uh, we got the message, no, uh, he's too sick. And then he died soon after. And um, so um, anyway, so I never met him. I never studied sociology. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so that was completely autodidactic. And again, like I started reading mm -hmm. these long books without understanding them. Like which, one, I don't, which one did you start with? For, for instance, um, I read um, um, Die Wissenschaft der Gesellschaft. Uh, I don't know, that's not probably not even translated into uh, English. But, uh, his book on, this, on the academic system, on the science system. Mm. But then also others. I've, I have them here uh, still, uh, sort of like this. And uh, then, of course, you have to read Social Systems, Soziale Systeme, which was the main thing. Uh, that was written in the 1980s, which was the first big summary of his theory. And then uh, then came um, um, uh, Die Gesellschaft der Gesellschaft, which is um, his final work, Theory of Society, is the English translation. And this is like more than 1,000 pages, mm. a summary of his whole theory. And um, yeah, then I read that. And then uh, I read some some of the smaller books and articles and so forth. So I made my way through, I guess, a significant part of his work. But even yeah. though I wrote two books on Luhmann, <laughs> uh, I probably read less than half of the works that he uh, published, right? Yeah. Um, it's... Um, and it was all autodidactic. Um, mm -hmm. But I had... Um, I developed some contacts over the years with some of his major students, like, for instance, mm -hmm. Elena Esposito. I also have an interview mm -hmm. with her on my channel. Yep. Uh, she's now professor in Bielefeld, uh, mm -hmm. and she's, like, highly regarded. And a few other people also in the Anglo-American world that are Lumanian. So, um, but... Um, the Lum you can say the same thing maybe about Luhmann's theory, which is very kind of fits the theory that has no center mm -hmm. uh, and it's not yeah. linear and uh, is kind of this rhizomatic thing to use a Deleuzian term. 
And um, that's the same with the Lumanians, uh, even mm-hmm. though there is like in Germany, there's still like uh, he's still like his students are still kind of influential. Uh, and um, I know some of them, uh, but some of them I don't personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but they're all kind of dispersed. And um, Luhmann has large effect on a wide variety of fields, uh, but without a real center. I mean, he's not even like in sociology. He's not like, a, I, as far as I understand it, at least outside of Germany. Uh, you know, it's not, he is regarded as an important sociologist, social theorist, I guess, but not as... Um, you know, it's not that if you study sociology, you definitely have, have to study Luhmann, right? Mm-hmm. That's, he's not yeah. at the center of social theory, right? Nowadays, mm-hmm. far from it. And, um, so yeah, he's just dispersed law, theology, art. Yeah. Um, so he was just seen every, everywhere in yes, applying. Yes. Yeah. Everywhere, yeah. nowhere. Mm-hmm. And here, and here in Macau, <laughs> maybe the strongest influence outside of sociology or probably is in law. And even yes. here in Macau, mm-hmm. um, uh, our law faculty, uh, the people in the law faculty, they all at least know of Luhmann. So he's been mm-hmm. quite influential in, in, in academic law studies, legal mm-hmm. studies or whatever. Yeah. And legal not, theory. Not, yeah. Not coincidental as he you know was working at the as a legal clerk and you know administration you know very early on but you know he would he would clock out at five o'clock sharp and go home and read hegel and work on his uh right all night and do theory theoretical work but that gave him a a unique he was i think worked in law for maybe five years or something yes yes you know um yeah beginning of his yeah adult life yes and um did you know, like, when you when you read Lumen, like, you know, did you just try to hold it all in your head, like, and all these, you know, these very uh, unique terms, you know, the second order observation, uh, autopiosis, which he got from the, I think, the South American um, scholars, right. and uh, you know, like, how did you how did you actually penetrate the texts and you know, uh, untangle everything? Do you did you write everything down by hand and you know take very notes. unsystematically very yeah. unsystematically and um i just took it in i mean as I, as i said earlier it brings us back to the beginning of the conversation right yeah. i i wasn't yet i didn't write develop these kind of reading skills uh, that mm-hmm. i have now mm-hmm. so i was just reading this stuff without understanding most of it yeah what what are your what's your re- like when you uh when uh, like going back to the reading skills now like how what did that what does that look like do you print out those you know the journals um and just read the abstract and then like take the idea while you are writing the paper like do you use microsoft word and are you kind of writing the paper as you go along and then you know what is that what is this process actually look like for uh you know in that for a, a professional in the academic industry well again you have to identify relevant texts that you need to know mm. and then these may be books or these may be articles mm-hmm. and then I see. uh and so you have you have you know whatever i'm i'm and then you're whatever now i'm i'm 
uh, working on gender, right? And then there mm -hmm. are some core texts, whatever, by from a philosophical perspective, like classics like De Beauvoir and Judith Butler. Mm -hmm. So I actually have to to read those. But mm -hmm. then uh, with Butler, I read um, a number of, I read her whole book and then a few articles. And with De Beauvoir, to be honest, even though I have the book, uh, I didn't read the whole book. It's like a thousand pages, mm -hmm. but I just read uh, selected parts, like the mm -hmm. uh, like the introduction and the conclusion, and that was enough for my purposes. Mm -hmm. So I didn't force myself to. I knew because the ideas are so much in the discourse, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm familiar with the basic ideas. Um, but really, I can kind of zero in on specific parts uh, that mm. are for my purposes uh, sufficient, because I'm not intending to write a book on de Beauvoir, right? Mm -hmm. I'm writing, uh, and I need her for a certain thing. And I know what I need her for, namely for the idea of authentic authenticity with regard mm -hmm. to gender. So I search for whatever I read certain parts, I now we can use this electronically, I use mm -hmm. I check wherever does she use the word authenticity, or wherever does the translator yeah. use interesting. Yeah. Uh, so stuff like this, right, and I can look through or similar words. Yeah. Um, but then again, like for other theorists that are more recent, and that are more kind of directly influential to for the general discourse, I need to actually read the whole gender trouble book, right? Even mm -hmm. though it's very, uh, uh, but anyways, I, yeah. I have to make the effort, yeah. right? Uh, and then again, with other texts um, uh, that um, uh, come up, uh, you, um, you might just, you know, just have a quick, quick look at the abstract and it. Maybe yeah. that's maybe enough. And are you reading this and just retaining and holding this in your head and processing it and okay. you know juggling it in your head you know over the you know the 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 pregnancy of twenty four months are you well writing it I down? do uh, no I I do t several things I underline mm -hmm. um, mar or mark in the text uh, mm -hmm. and of course I make uh, notes for myself not a lot of notes mm -hmm. um, yeah. and I I write these these notes down. And again, uh, that's always important for me. Um, I um, like, for instance, with uh, De Beauvoir and Butler, uh, I teach. I just mm -hmm. uh, you select these same texts for uh, for my classes mm -hmm. and do, do a, a lecture to my to my students, and then also discuss with my students. That's very useful. So that's great in the academic that we still have that. Um, uh, and I, I enjoy that that possibility to um, to use these materials in teaching, and then mm -hmm. uh, when I once I teach it, it kind of, of course, again Understand. forces me forces me to um, you know to to process it in my mind and also exactly. to express it and to get feedback. So maybe this kind of teaching. Re yeah. teaching related to reading is a, is for me methodologically also very important yeah definitely yeah they you know there's so many of those uh you know those those quotes out there you know to understand something teach it right um yes so exactly that, that, yes yeah yeah and i think and, luman did the same yeah uh, that's right i'm sure he did actually mm -hmm. i'm sure he did um even though i never did took a class as i said i know personally quite well several of his students 
uh, and they they immensely enjoyed the classes with him. Yeah. So I think that also for him, uh, the teaching part with his PhD students mm-hmm. and advanced students, uh, mm. I'm sure that was also uh, essential for him. Yeah. What is your teaching? What does your schedule look like now? Like, are you teaching currently actively teaching any classes? Uh, yes, I'm teaching history of Chinese philosophy this uh, to to local students, all of them Chinese, which is a little bit odd, right? <laughs> but again, this is my yeah. uh, this is my actual area of specialization, so I feel comfortable doing that. Yeah. Um, um, and uh, last year I was last semester, so I only have to teach one course, fortunately. A semester. That, awesome. Uh, well, sometimes two. Uh, but this semester and last semester only one and um, last semester I I taught a course on gender identity in preparation of my book it was a PhD course and these are just some of the texts we studied we studied other texts as well uh, that I just mentioned right Mm -hmm. so um, yeah and um, uh, I'm I'm fortunate uh, I the academic industry is very difficult these days. And uh, mm-hmm. I was kind of my generation, it was still much better than it is for younger people. And I mean, people get exploited a lot in North America as well in the USA. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have to teach a lot and they're getting, not getting paid very well. I see. And um, I'm fortunate that uh, I don't have to teach a lot. Mm-hmm. which gives me more time for research and i reading I'm also and fortunate thinking. that i'm paid well yeah that's fantastic yeah so that's what i was going to ask is you know i how, yeah how much of your time uh you know is spent doing teaching versus admin work versus being able to just read and think and you know write you know um i i think you said it wrote it in the 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 profile, uh, you and your profile about it's like, you know, am, am I going to get bogged down having to write, you know, diversity reports <laughs> about right, how right, my right. How, how my classroom is diverse or how my department is diverse, you know, and is is of that course. is there more and more time? Like, are you bogged down by those admin tasks of having to write down re- write out reports of uh, professing th- your commitment to diversity or what is what is the makeup of? Well, fortunately, like? we. we... Fortunately, because I work in Macau, um, mm-hmm. I don't have to do this kind of stuff. But of course, in the US, you have to do it and you're constantly confronted with it. And the same is in, in Europe. Um, the, uh, here, the, uh, and again, I'm fortunate. Um, I'm not in a specifically demanding administrative uh, position. But a while ago, I was a head of department. And uh, when you're head of department, then you don't have much much time for something else. It's mm. like crazy. All the really? meetings you have to go to, and all the all the stuff you have to write. And then, um, then so we are like six or seven people in our department, and then the one is mm-hmm. head, and then one, another one is associate dean. They also offered me that position, and I declined, mm-hmm. um, which is well paid. Again, you get even more money, but the, mm-hmm. and you completely but, waste your time. Mm-hmm. So the, what I want to say is, 
um, we have like six people and um, um, in the department and two have these administrative position. And you can basically say for them, there's very little time left for research. So mm-hmm. it really depends on the position. So there is a far, far too uh, large amount of administrative work that is completely unproductive that has to be done by the department, but mm. it is divided unevenly among mm. colleagues. Yeah. So I'm I'm fortunate that I'm not one of the colleagues who are burdened with all the administrative work. Yeah. So your time is freed up to teach. And to or to do the stuff we're and, doing right now, right? Exactly. Yeah, to get your message out into the world, to right. get to the, do the research videos. into the world. Yeah. yeah, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, that's that's yeah, also that's yeah that's that's good to hear that there are still you know areas and pockets of the world where the you know truly great and original thinkers can spend their time just reading, thinking, writing, uh, without all the other stuff and i i feel like you know the narrative right now in academia and education is you know people are kind of trying to overthrow education and you know the the traditional structure and say and so what's what's ends up happening at least in the maybe in america and by the way i i'm not very privy to this because i'm an independent you know like i'm an entrepreneur i work for myself um you know but i'm on the mission i'm helping people that are maybe you know post-academics or really mostly people that just love reading, writing, and thinking about the type of stuff that that you are into and just anything that fascinates people and help them spend their days doing that while also making a comfortable living. And so you have to be a little bit more crafty and, you know, in the uh the capitalistic uh you know systems of you know getting familiar with marketing and marketing yourself like that. Um, because the alternative in the US, what you alluded to is it seems like you know the academics and teachers are just getting exploited like hey you have to teach you know five classes a day <laughs> type of type of stuff or admin stuff and you know you get paid a very low amount um and uh yeah so that's 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 at least good to good to hear that there's still pockets where uh you know you can have that dream intellectual life you know without getting bogged down in admin work all day <laughs> right yeah um what is your like where do you spend do you do you go to a uh, university of macau um five days a week like i i've seen other videos where you have an office there you know what what is your i remember lumen i think at least i've I actually interviewed lumen's youngest son clemens lumen um to get some yeah some some insight and clemens once said he's like i was like so did your i i thought lumen would spend his days at the university of billefeld and clemens was like no he hated going over there like he always spent his time at the home office in orlinghausen he would read and sit up on he had this like i think chaziz lounge chair this gray lounge chair and just read all day you know have a note card you know out sticking out of the book um what is your what is your kind of uh yeah what is your daily life look like do you have to go it's like similar i'm and I'm, I'm, I am I'm. don't I don't work in my office uh, for mm-hmm. I mean don't do research work I I go there only once or twice a week and to whatever to film the videos mm-hmm. uh, that's one of the reasons and then um, you know when I have class or meetings uh, and then 
I spend time in the office and I do emails mm -hmm. in the office, which is a lot. Uh, but I don't do actual reading or writing in the office. I'm not used to it. It feels like for Luhmann. And that's, again, similar. The old kind of, I guess it's for many people like this. But then other people, they work in the office. Uh, mm -hmm. I guess it depends. But for my generation, I guess it's still academics still used to do all the research usually at home. Yeah, interesting. It, I, I don't know if I could if I could do... I I feel I cannot write at the office. I mean, I write yeah. at the office administrative stuff, as I said, mm -hmm. and I I write email professional communication, uh, but I don't write any research on my mm -hmm. office. Deep, deeply creative, deeply researched, creative stuff you write at home, and you it allows you to yes, yeah. Um, and do you do? do and you I live just... I live on my own, right? So I have no. Um, uh i have no other I, I live a very kind of i have very small like a yeah. how living space is very uh tight so i just have mm -hmm. a small place and you live the dream intellectual the dream intellectual life simplicity you know all of your all of your mind yeah, energy yeah, very can, be, yeah. can be allocated towards you know what what truly matters and the the thinking i don't know i mean work. other things matter too uh, i wouldn't say <laughs> that uh, what i what i do matters more than other stuff I seriously, what, what, honestly, I don't think so. What What matters yeah. to you? What matters to you? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Fascinating. Well, yeah, you you've you've got the 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 intellectual life, and um, yeah, thank you so much for for going deep into detail, like the more mundane detail. Me, you know, uh, you know, asking you, you know, how you read and and all of that stuff. Um, I want to wrap it up with a, a just to go even more mundane is. When you write, what what program do you use? What software program do you use Word. to write your books in Word? Okay, Word. yeah, and you just write, write, write in that. And usually, when when it comes time to write, you said like the giving birth part is easy because it's been ruminating in your mind for such a long period of time. Right. Yeah. 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 I used I to. Say. I don't know. I used to my. Uh, it's so hard. Uh, the, the the writing is so difficult. When I was a student, at at first, I used to still write uh, hand do handwriting. Mm -hmm. uh, I that was before the computer. And mm -hmm. then my first kind of essays at the university as a student, I wrote by hand, and my father typed them on a typewriter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, of course, that was a completely different. Uh, way of writing right so i kind of welcome the word processing thing and that mm -hmm. was also luman like i luman didn't have as we said that's you know people at that time didn't have a computer so yeah uh, uh then um the the word processing uh helps a lot right mm -hmm. uh, to, yeah to produce text in an efficient way yeah L L lumen you know had already been doing it for what like 30 years 30 had already been using a Zettel Costin for like 30 years when, you know, when, uh, or so before the, the computer actually became, you know, uh, well, the computer exists, became in existence in like the eighties, but then it became actually sure. more usable in the nineties. And I remember when I was talking to Clemens Lumen, you know, Clemens was like 16 at the time and studying programming. And he's like, dad, like, why don't, why don't you switch to, uh, to digital or to word or something? And yeah. Lumen was like, well, 
you know, who's going to digitize all this stuff? And if it works, why, why change? I'm not changing now. And so of for course. like, you know, the 10 last 10 years of his life, he just stuck with it because it worked, yes. you know, but I, I think today he would just probably build it in one big word document. Um, but the, you know, there's also benefits is what I've like touted is of, of the slowing, especially now slowing down, unplugging from the digital writing by hand the way he did it. I think it'll also allowed him to kind of develop his ideas as well. There's, you know, pros and cons. Um, but it's, yeah, it's fascinating. I think, I think it, if Lumen were around today, Nicholas Lumen was around today, he would find it almost hilarious or ironic or paradoxical that he's not known, at least in the US, like how I discovered him. He's not known for his social work his or his social theoretical work his theories of everything uh he's known for his zettelkasten which then has introduced people to so to his social theoretical work so it's like right. the inverse it's it's the self-referential right. loop there's no center it's like right. you know here he was spending 30 35 years of his life to create this super transformative theory of everything yet the thing that has become at least in the in western and in in the u.s just as popular or more popular than his actual the output was the input you know the was the way that he actually exactly. wrote it which is just exactly it's it yes. almost is a uh, paradoxical kind of like highlights his own um power of his own thinking which i think he right. would be very much amused if he saw what yes. actually has happened and transpired today <laughs> <So>. <laughs> absolutely yes that's a very yeah. good point yeah well uh, Georg, I know we, we planned for an hour and a half and, you know, we've, we've hit that, we've hit that, uh, time length. So I wanted to see if, you know, is there anything else that, uh, you'd like to, that I should have asked or that, uh, you, you'd like to cover, talk about, um, or no, yeah. no, thanks a lot, Scott. It's been a great pleasure. Hey, real quick. This podcast was made possible by my sponsor, which is me. Yes. Frickin' me. Sir Scott of Shepherd. You see, I am committed to never shilling some dildo freaking hipster crappy product like all the other podcasters do. All right? So my only ask is that you spend 10 seconds right now, pull to the side of the road, even if you're on the freaking freeway, and rate and review this podcast. Then share it with a friend. That's my only ask. You see, this will help spread my movement. I want to create an army of 1,000 independent writers, creators, and thinkers who get to spend their days doing what they love, writing, creating, thinking, and taking notes using analog tools, while also making multiple six figures if they even choose to. And more importantly, I want to help my people build a tribe, a tribe of people that they were meant to serve. And so by rating and reviewing this podcast right now, you will directly help me and many others in achieving this mission. Peace.